Again, we are in the book of Ephesians, and I thought we'd get through verse 10, but um, I think 10 is such a good balance to what we'll consider today in verses 8 and 9 that um, it, it's worthy of its own sermon subject. So we're, we're in general talking about our deadness in sin and being made alive in Christ. If you remember uh, the past uh, couple weeks that uh, we need to consider that as dead people, as dead sinners, that the only way that we can have life spiritually is if God intervenes, if God acts, if God gives us a new heart and a new life. And now we come to the question, or at least Paul does, is what kind of life does God intend for us to live? And that is a very big question. In fact, it is the question. Why are we here? What gives meaning to the things we do and the things that happen to us? And I do just want to remind you, I, I don't I know it's difficult to remember the last week's sermon. I'm telling you that as the one who preached it. It can be a struggle to do that. But I, I, I think it's going to be helpful for us to remember that. Um, last week we talked about God's salvation map, right? The motivation of salvation, the actions of salvation, the purpose of salvation. The motivation of salvation is love. Uh, the actions God took for our salvation was he revived us, he raised us, and then he reverenced us, he brings us up to Christ. And that the purpose of salvation, the MAP, motivation, action, purpose, the purpose of salvation is to display God's grace. And it's that last point that Paul is really expanding on, on verse 8 through 10. The purpose of salvation is that we would live by grace. Every moment of our lives is ordained to be a demonstration of God's grace in us. Now I know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, one of the most memorized passages of Scripture. It is one of the first things I can remember just having uh, engraved on my mind. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God that no one may boast. These are words that have been commented on, preached on, put to song. Uh, I had a slight fear, and I'm, I'm not kidding about that, of, of, about preaching these verses because uh, especially many of you older saints probably have a lot of thoughts already. When you come into this passage, and I was a little worried that if I didn't talk about the entire Protestant Reformation, or I didn't re uh, reference some revered theologian that is your favorite on this subject, or if I didn't quote every single Puritan who ever used the word grace, that someone's expectations might not be met. And you'd be disappointed in the sermon, and, well, he didn't really cover everything that, 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 that grace is in the whole Bible. Well, as I said many times before, the only thing I could say to that, because there was a fear that I had in my own heart, the only thing I could tell myself was, you have one Sunday morning. I mean, you could drag it out for a year if you wanted to, but try to just constrain yourself to one Sunday morning and try to believe whatever you're about to say. So let me just tell you, I'm going to preach to you what I have been personally convicted by. The, I, I'm aware that the Puritans said a lot about grace. I know that almost the entire Protestant Reformation really is about about this issue of grace alone. Um, but I, I know that in my own heart, I need to know what that is means in the text right here when Paul said it. And I need to know 
what that means right now in my life and how that pertains. So I hope, and I say this many Sundays, that this time would just be the beginning of your thoughts on grace, not the end or the conclusion of it. I'm not going to say everything there is to say about grace. In fact, I'm going to go one more you know, Sunday because I think the works part of, of uh, grace here, and we'll see how that works out next week, um, is very important. But I, I just, I, I felt very convicted that if I try to preach all of the systematic theology that I know about grace, that you're either going to be you're either going to be bored and or we're going to be here for countless ages. And in a way, we are going to be talking about grace for countless ages. But you probably don't want that to start like right now, right? Right now, and then we're just going to stay here. So I hope that is, I hope you understand where I'm coming from. Some people don't like when the pastors say, say stuff like that. It, it makes us seem um, like we're not, you know, ministry machines like the Terminator. But I, I hope when I say that to you, you understand that I, I do sometimes worry about like, oh, we're talking about some big important subject and someone out there is going to wish he said this and that and that. Uh, I don't, I don't want to preach out of fear of you guys. I got to preach out of fear of the Lord. So just a little bit of background. Is that okay? If it's not okay, you can come talk to me about it afterwards. Uh, I will say this. I will say this. One of my favorite authors on the subject, though, a contemporary author um, is Jerry Bridges. So if you find whatever I say to be quite lackluster, and that's okay. You can have that opinion. Jerry Bridges does a fantastic job of speaking of grace in that profound, quotable, contemporary, practical way. I think we have many of his books in our library. Go check that out. But Jerry Bridges is fantastic on this subject. All right. There is only one point I'm going to try to drive home. It is the one point that Paul is trying to drive home in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and it is that grace is not a matter of works. In other words, that grace, by definition, cannot be something that you have earned, something that you can attain for yourself, something that you can pay for. Grace is not a matter of works so that God might get all the glory. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We are really just going to go piece by piece through every little phrase because each little phrase is making that same point. Grace cannot be earned. You cannot gain God's favor by what you do or who you are. We're just going to talk about how grace is this gift of God that glorifies God. Next week, we'll talk about how grace works, which is an incredible thought, but it's, it's too amazing, I think, to try and shove into this morning's sermon. So grace is not earned. The first phrase you have is for by grace. For is means you're going to explain something. What's he going to explain? He's going to explain or talk about that salvation map. And he's already referenced grace in verse 5. If you remember, he uses the term there, just right in the middle of our salvation map. He says, by grace you have been saved. This phrase, uh, grace, just, just so you know, whenever you look at 
a word in your English Bibles or whatever language Bible you have, uh, unless it's a Greek New Testament, you're looking at a translation, right? So you're looking at a translation right now, most of you, of English, of, of a Greek New Testament that was the original language that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians in. Now, um, you have to understand that these words then had a meaning before they were used in the Bible. The word grace existed in the culture just as a normal word like love. So um, they tend to, when they're used in the New Testament, gain like a maybe religious meaning, you could say, or a Christian meaning. But understand, the word grace existed in Greek before the New Testament was written. But Paul is going to use this Greek word, and he's going to write about it, and the context is going to tell you what Paul means by this word grace. So that's how we understand. And this is something just as far as a Bible tool for you. Maybe you've never done this before. But what is sometimes helpful to understand how Christians use the word, say, grace, is to look at all the other places in the New Testament where that word grace in Greek is used. The word grace in Greek is charis, right? And so you could look through with the concordance all the different uses of the word grace in Greek, and you start to get a better picture. Okay, the Greeks, when they used it in, as their own language, it meant generally good favor or good will or uh, showing kindness to someone. But what does, what does the New Testament say means? Oh, well, it covers this subject, that subject. What you could also do is look at uh, a Bible dictionary. A Bible dictionary, which we have a lot of in the, in the library as well, basically does that work for you. It collects all the uses of that word, and it makes a little, um, it puts a little paragraph or two about it that some theologian who's very brilliant puts together that biblical picture of the word. But ultimately, ultimately, the context is what's going to be most helpful about understanding what Paul means. And I say this because, again, when, you, when I hear these verses, I think of a hundred sermons I've heard. I think of seminary classes that I've been in. I think of many, many sermons and songs, and those can all just fill that in. By grace, you've been saved. And I already have a conception of what this word means. But when I approached this text this week, I really wanted to, to limit myself. Well, the Ephesians, they didn't necessarily have all of those benefits, did they? But they could understand this word and what it meant. They could apply it. I'm not saying it's wrong to look at all the other uses of this word, but they didn't have a concordance. They didn't have strongs back 2,000 years ago. They would have been able to understand what this word meant in context. So just to help you maybe in your own Bible studies and encourage you in how to understand the text for yourself, that's what we're going to do here. Um, Paul has used this word already in verse 5, like I said, and now in verse 8, with almost the same kind of grammar and language. And so Paul is trying to tell us something about God. We know that for sure. We're not talking about the grace that we show to each other. So very common greeting in, uh, in the Bible even is grace to you and peace, right? And so that's a common greeting. It just kind of generally means like I... I wish well for you. I hope good things happen to you. That's what grace means there. Well, is that all that's going on here? Well, no, the context tells us 
it is one of the most serious theological subjects that you find in Paul's letters that are, we're dead in sin and Christ in his death on the cross raised us up and, and God has seated us with him in the heavenlies. We're not talking about, hey, I hope you're having a nice day. I hope you find a penny when you're walking down the sidewalk. I mean, we're not talking about cheap things like that. We're talking about the very nature of the goodness of God demonstrated in the most defining moment of history, which is for Jesus Christ to die and rise again for the sake of sinners. That is the context of grace, of God's grace. He means exactly then here that salvation map. He's encapsulating the motivation of salvation, the actions of salvation, the purpose of salvation, and saying all of that is God's grace towards us. He demonstrates his own kindness, his own overflowing generosity towards us by saving us even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, even though we were rebels and children of wrath by nature. His grace is highlighted. Paul is using this word, and he's highlighting how undeserving we are of this salvation by beginning with that backdrop of unworthiness at the beginning of chapter 2. We shouldn't receive anything good from God, but God gives us everything. There you go. That's your definition of grace. God gives us everything, though we deserve nothing. That's one definition you could draw from this. Another definition of grace is the concrete life, death, resurrection, birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he is definitely referring to, when he talks about made us alive together with Christ and so on, he's pointing to the actual facts of Jesus living, dying, rising again, being ascended to the Father, and they're preparing a place for that. All of that is also God's grace. God's grace then is also a concrete thing. It's not just a, oh, God has this feeling towards us of doing overwhelming good, even though we don't deserve it. It's backed up by the grace shown in his actions to send Jesus Christ to die on the behalf of sinners. When Paul speaks of God's grace then, it is an overwhelmingly abundant expression of God's kindness and goodness towards those who have done nothing to earn it or merit it. He loves us though we are unlovable. He doesn't have to love us. His grace gives us a new life in Jesus Christ, promises to make us co-heirs with him even though we absolutely don't deserve it. I just, I know the, in the past week, the, um, the Queen of England passed away and King Charles has, I think, already ascended to the throne. But just imagine if instead of King Charles ascending to the throne, they went to their prison and they found a traitor to the throne and said, you, you're going to go sit on this throne and rule over our people. I mean, that's bizarre. That, that's, that's unconscionable. That's offensive. That's what God did. <laughs> He takes rebels, us, who sinned against him and said, you know what, you're going to reign with the true heir together with him over the universe. I mean, we don't deserve that. How could you ever earn that? How could you ever say you did anything to make 
God acknowledge you in that way. It would be to either diminish what that throne is or to elevate yourself to the status of God. And that's what we're going to come to um, in terms of application is that if you can earn grace, then you must be God. You don't think of it like that, but that is exactly what is happening. We'll get there uh, in a minute. All that to say, if we have to earn grace, it isn't grace. For by grace, you have been saved. We come to that phrase now, you have been saved grammatically. It's in the perfect tense if you're a grammar uh, nerd. That means a previous action that continues to have present day application. So we're talking not just about you have been saved by grace, and that was just a one-time thing and happened in the past whenever you got saved. No, you are still being saved. You're still, you're not perfect yet. And so you are still being saved, and it is still by grace. When Luther famously nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg and unwittingly launched the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church would have technically agreed with the statement that we are saved by grace. I mean, they can't ignore these passages per se. They had actually deemed some folks heretics for suggesting otherwise. But the point of contention is that the Catholic Church believed that after a person is saved from their sins, that state of salvation can only be maintained if they did good works which could include things like paying money, you know, buying indulgences, but also different rituals and sacraments and different to-dos that the priest could give to you. you see, that, that's what Luther saw was that if you need good works to keep you in a state of salvation, this is essentially a works-based religion. It's not really salvation by grace. If, if you... And again, James, or, uh, the scripture is clear that that cannot be the case, but it's, it's very, very subtle. And I know it's subtle because we often fall into that trap. I, I, I know so many of us get into that habit. Well, I'm saved by grace, but now that I'm a Christian, I got to do, do, do. Well, that, that is what, what Luther saw and said, if that's, if that's how you can maintain your salvation, I can't do that. I cannot, if it's up to me and I have to keep doing good works in order to make up for the sin that I do, then I'm lost. I can't keep up that routine. Think of it this way. If, if I'm saved by grace, if you're saved by grace, but I can fall out of that salvation through my sin, what did that grace cover? What did that grace actually cover? If I... My initial salvation is by grace, but then I can fall out of it. How much grace did I receive at salvation? Just enough to cover what I did up until that point? Well, you know, they, they baptize babies in the Catholic Church and some Christian churches too. And, and Catholics believe when you baptize, you're giving them grace, salvation grace. So that baby, when they're baptized, they're given this salvation grace. Like, how much grace did that baby receive? How much sins are they, uh, are, is being covered up? Now, their original sin is being covered up, but how much of their sin is being covered up? Well, yes, babies are sinners. Don't get me wrong. But it's not like that much grace. And if they, as soon as they sin, have fallen out of that grace, it hardly seems like they got a lot given to their account. 
Whereas the Bible seems to picture that the grace of God covers all of my sin. Not just the ones I did up until the point I got saved, but even the ones I will do. In other words, that God's grace is sufficient. So when we think of being saved by grace, or you have been saved by grace, I was saved in the past, that was by grace, and now I'm continuing in that path of salvation, that is also by grace, that is suggesting that none of it at any point in your life, even now, how many, however many years you've been a Christian, has it ever been that you needed to earn or pay back that salvation. It is to suggest that the grace that God gave to you was not enough, that he was cheaping out, that he gave you just enough to cover movies, popcorn, but not the drink. It just, you know, and, you know, I was very, I didn't have an offering, so I was very dependent on my parents um, to supply, you know, what I needed when I, when I went out. And so we were pretty frugal. But do you get any sense when we talk about the immeasurable riches of Christ that God has given us, that he's cheaping out on grace, just giving you enough to get by? Or did he cover everything? If we were saved by grace, we can only stay saved by grace. If we have to earn grace after being saved, which is what Luther was bucking against, if grace has a price tag, it isn't grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Faith, again, is one of those words that you can look through the whole New Testament, the whole Bible, for a complete definition. But Paul is using it here to mean that God's grace, while it is exceedingly abundant, it is only applicable to those who put faith in Jesus. Those who don't have faith don't experience God's grace. Faith is the means by which this grace comes to us. And the Bible is clear from beginning to end that while a true faith does produce acts of faith, the acts of faith, the works of faith come from faith, but faith itself is not a work. In other words, Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed Yahweh and he counted to him as righteousness. And it's repeated in Romans 4, 9 as well, but this is a classic passage on our justification by faith and not by works. He believed in the Lord. He put faith in the Lord, and the Lord said, you are now counted as righteous. For that belief to be considered or counted as righteousness, righteousness meaning, meaning someone who does the right thing, all right, who does only righteous good things, for faith to be counted as that means that faith is not a work of righteousness, right? I mean, if you're saying that because you exercise faith, I will, I will count it as righteousness means that the act of faith itself is not a work. It itself is something that, that, that is, you could say, a, a grace. If grace belongs to those who have faith, then grace must be coming to those who don't have righteousness to begin with. So there's no way that someone can have faith that is counted to righteousness, if that person believes my faith is something that I have that is a good thing that God must that, that God must pay me back for. He owes it to me. 
that would suggest again that grace also then is something he owes, something you've earned, something you've done. No, faith is the Lord seeing something that isn't a a righteousness, you could say, and he's going to consider righteousness, then that means this is all a gift. This is all by the, the, the love of God motivating his own action to uh, give to us everything that we need. Grace is not for those who are already righteous, but those who have been declared righteous by God. God must declare us righteous. We cannot be righteous in our own. And it's very clear the next phrase then. This is not your own doing. Again, the spiritual reality is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So to make ourselves spiritually alive, to save ourselves, it would be like expecting a corpse to start doing CPR on itself. Now, already, even for an alive person, to do CPR on themselves wouldn't work. But the Bible is even more clear that you're dead. So this is asking a dead person to do CPR on itself, to save itself. That is how not of your own doing this salvation is. A dead person can't do anything, let alone resuscitate himself or herself. And so isn't it so clear by now that our salvation isn't something that we do or achieve on our own? And Paul here gives this explicit statement that there's no way God's grace and salvation is at all ever something we should say, yeah, I deserve it. Because look at what I've done. Of course God would do this for me. Of course God would acknowledge me in this way. Of course God would make me a co-heir with Christ. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Of course not. This is not your own doing. Now that phrase needs to be one of the most freeing, liberating thoughts in your heart. I can't save myself. I can't save you. You can't save me. Only God can save. And so now you are free and liberated from trying to find salvation in all of the cheap and plastic and self-destructive ways that the world has to offer. You're free from having to follow every trend in order to be popular, from trying to climb up a corporate ladder so that you can have enough money or power. You are free because God's grace is sufficient, overwhelming, abundant, and you didn't do anything to earn it. Now, I'm not saying don't work hard at your job. I'm not saying don't uh, be invested in your relationships with your spouse and with others. When I say it's a free and liberating thought, it doesn't mean free of any kind of obligation, duty, or responsibility. But rather, this is a freedom that God it's a, it's a confidence that God saw you in your miserable and wicked and selfish estate, and he still chose to love you. So you cannot lose God's grace or favor, love, affection, all of the blessings he's given. You can't, because when he did this, when he gave you his grace to begin with, you didn't deserve it. That, that, that should boost... That is what they need to teach in schools instead of self-esteem classes. 
and individuation, self-individuation and actualization. They need to teach that the freest you'll ever be is to know that the God who created all things freely, even despite your sin, chose to love those who were unlovable, those who were sinners. That's, that's an amazing thought. That would transform, should transform any kid's life. It should transform yours life. We are to be the grace people. And yes, it involves being the you're dead in your own sin people, but I, I wish that as, as the Christians would be known as much for being the, the moral police, right, and, and judging sin and sinners that somehow, some way we could also be known for believing in a marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. I mean, how, if this is one of the most important phrases for your Christian life, this is not your own doing, then why doesn't the world know that? <laughs> That's what we're about. It is the gift of God, Paul continues, not as a result of works. The word for gift here is almost exclusively used, in the Bible at least, about gifts that you bring to God typically in the context of worshiping God formally, like offering sacrifices in the temple and so on. There's a few uses of this word referring to giving gifts to each other. But most of the uses are the gifts that we give to God, worship and praise, sacrifice, and so on. There's only one use of this word in the Bible in the context of God giving us a gift. And it's here. I mean, isn't that... Isn't that humbling? Paul uses a word that almost exclusively speaks of our work for God, and he uses it to refer to God giving to us instead. That has to burn in your heart. Our salvation is not only something that we do not earn, it is a gift that God earns for us, that he gives to us. When we try to earn it, try to work for it, we're doing something horribly offensive to God. You're trying to earn an infinitely valuable gift. How do you think you're going to pay for that? Or do you think your salvation is so cheap? We dishonor God's gift to us when we think that we can earn Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Let, let me say it this way. Just imagine doing anything so great, so wonderful that you could say, all right, Jesus, this good work I did, it's equal to your horrific death on the cross that paid for my sin. So we can make an exchange. Let's, let's do a deal here. I've got this good work, and I see you hanging on the cross, and I think this is an equal exchange. Isn't that just a horrific thought? Isn't that so offensive to what you think you've ever done with your life to equal it? to the work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And yet that's exactly the problem with believing that our salvation would be due to anything except God's own mercy and love and act of salvation towards us. I mean, it's his gift. We should be the ones giving him a gift. We should be the ones offering endless sacrifices of blood and, and, and animals and all these things. We, we should. But God said, you know, it wouldn't be enough. That's how bad a sinner you are. It wouldn't be enough. I must give you a gift. And he sends his son 
live a perfect life, to die a horrific, shameful, excruciating death on our behalf in order that the consequences and penalties of our sin might be paid for. There's nothing you could do that could ever pay that back, which is why your life now, God's purpose for it, is not that you would live a life perpetually indebted to God so that you have to pay it back, but that we would live a life that would be in a perpetual display of God's grace, that we'd be trophies of his to communicate how good and kind God is. That is the way God wants us to live our life. And that is the purpose of the good works that we'll talk about next week. It must be this way because God wants that no one may boast. I mean, that is to say, who gets all the glory? God gets all the glory. God doesn't want anyone to think that they are, they've done anything equal to what he has done. And, and that's true, because you'd have to say that you are like God. So when you hear, see here that no one may boast, don't, don't think of that as, as like, well, God seems kind of selfish. He's just hogging all the glory for himself. No, think of it as like, are you God? Have you ever done anything God-like? <laughs> Does anyone here think that they deserve the kind of praise that only God deserves? No, I hope you would say, of course not. Well, that's the point is God is God, and he should be acknowledged as that. Now, I think at least for me, as, as I considered these very, very familiar words, uh, it, it struck me that there are many ways, there are many ways that we allow this attitude of thinking that by our works, God gives us grace. It's so subtle. It's in the little things. It's in the way we talk. It's in phrases like, um, God helps those who help themselves, right? That is false. God helps those who are helpless. That is the message of the Bible, Again, doesn't mean you don't put in work and effort. We're going to see that next week. But there's little attitudes like that. There's little attitudes like, you know, I don't ever say it this way. Don't worry, God, I got this. No, I don't. No, I don't. Uh, only by the grace of God will I get anything, right? There's an attitude, well, oh, you know why this bad thing happened to me today? It's because yesterday I... I, I you know, someone cut me off on the freeway, and I had a bad thought about them. And that's why God punished me today. That is a works. That's a works-based view of your salvation. That God is ever doing anything that is not for our best, whether it's discipline or blessing. If he's doing it in response to judging our sin, we, we secretly got it backward. This is a prayer, then, I hope all of you would have to consider what are the ways that I might be letting in a subtle works attitude in my heart about God's grace, or I might be making God's grace cheap by adding my works as if I could pay it off. Think about that. Think about the ways that uh, we are tempted to boast. I think it's shocking that Paul would have to say that no one may boast in their salvation, but people do. And again, it's probably not as straightforward as, uh, I'm a Christian because I'm so wonderful and so great. I don't think any of you have ever done that. Um, but I think there's a way 
that we, we boast um, at church in our salvation when uh, we make it seem at all like the reason that I'm doing well today is because I'm such a good person. So if you see me on a Sunday morning and, um, you know, and everything's going okay in my life, well, I hope you know. We don't ever say it explicitly like this. I hope you know it's because I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. That's why things are going so great for me. That would be boasting. That's what Paul's talking about here. I hope that we don't have that attitude. I know that we subtly have that attitude when we see someone else. Oh, you know, they look so put together. You know, the family, the kids all seem to be so obedient. They must be super Christians. They must be so awesome and so wonderful. That's not necessarily true. A, it's not necessarily true that what you see on a Sunday morning is actually what's going on at home. But, but B, it's not true that God just, this is what Job's friend said, is, oh, you're a good person, good things will happen. You're a bad person, bad things will happen. That isn't grace. That's the opposite of grace. So even though have that attitude coming to church and looking at people and just immediately assuming, oh, they look, they look dirty and, and, and uh, unkempt. God must be against them. But you see someone that's dressed really nice and, and put together, looks like they took a shower this morning even, God must really have favor on them. That is, in a way, to add grace to works. And in a way, adds a reason for people to boast. It makes other people think that that's the way it is. Can we try not to think that way or at least promote that kind of culture and attitude? Can we uh, be a place where people can be honest about the things they're going through? Look, everyone here, you look wonderful, all right? Let me just tell you that up front. So now you don't have to worry about how you look to other people, and you can be honest, all right? You all look great, all right? You look like nothing's wrong in your lives. Now, let's get past the lie and you guys, when we have coffee and donuts, actually tell people, you know, this was the worst week of my life. Or I'm going through this struggle or that struggle. Can we? That would be more honest. That would be more earnest. That's the way God's grace works, is that it is to you and I who don't deserve it, no matter what our exterior, no matter what we're faking, no matter what we look like on the outside. So if you're not a Christian, this salvation is being offered to you by the grace of God, that you can have this relationship. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have meaning and purpose to your life that it can be not about you, but the most liberating thought of law, that it can be about God and that you are here just to see God work in your life in glorious good ways. If you are a Christian this morning, uh, I hope that something, anything, one thing would prick your heart. Would, would, would burn in your soul a little bit, would motivate you to say maybe one thing after the service is over to another person that would point them towards the grace of God. I know we want to talk, I think football season started or whatever, the weather's crazy, you want to talk about that. You know, politics is starting up. There's a lot of things going on, but if just for a moment we could ask instead about salvation, about grace, and use that moment there's plenty of time to talk about that. We're here at church together. Let us speak of the things of the Lord. Could we do that? Talk to David and Julie about what's going on in Albania and how you can pray for them, what's going on in their, in their lives. Can we do that? Can we invest in each other's lives? Ask a, a question, maybe a slightly different way. Instead of just saying, how are you? Ask a more specific question. How are you 
doing in regards to X. Can you just be a little bit more specific? That way we can start to demonstrate, and I, I know that sounds like now we're just getting into, Pastor is trying to guilt trip us into being a better community or something. No, it's not that. It's that God wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what I want you to do. That's what the Lord wants you to do. That's what the pastor wants you to do, is use the opportunity when we are out talking with each other, after the service is over, to give an opportunity for God's immeasurable riches of grace to be communicated to each other. So it's a biblical goal that something of what we say and do today would show us the grace of God. Heavenly Father, I do pray that that would be a, a burning desire in, in my heart. It doesn't go any further than that. I, I can't tell someone else what to do or, or guarantee any result. It must be your word and your spirit. But I pray, Lord, at least by the grace of God, that I might change and grow and be more like you, not be satisfied just with the way the world does things, this graceless, works-based attitude that we have in our culture. I pray we would stand out and be different, that we would be known as the grace people, not just the people who condemn this sin and that sin, but that we would be known for those who talk of the most freeing thing of all, that we can have an identity united with God himself through his son. So, Lord, help us. Uh, I know I need it. Help us, Lord, to draw near to you by your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.